Hi, I'm Whitney Walker, and this is the Women Waken podcast, where I interview guests who are in the field of healing and spiritual work using their unique gifts of the divine feminine. We talk all about these amazing gifts that these particular guests have and how they're bringing them forth in the world. On this episode, I welcome Constance Scharf. Constance is a PhD in transformative studies and an addiction and trauma recovery specialist. She's also a researcher, author, and speaker. Constance has made it her life work after recovering from her own addiction and past traumas to help others to find their way towards greater peace, health, and well-being, and also freedom. Constance and I have a beautiful conversation around what is addiction? How can someone, whether newly in recovery or considering recovery, navigate the steps towards regaining their health? What does a recovery plan look like? How can we end the stigma of addiction? As well as how to begin seeing addiction in a different way and acknowledging that there is great hope and all the possibility in the world to truly come through and have a brighter and better life than ever before. So take a listen, enjoy, and here's my guest. Hi, Constance. Welcome to the Women Waken podcast. I am so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. I am really excited for our chat today because we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics, which is addiction and recovery and trauma recovery. Yeah. And it's so wonderful to you know, bring people together because I've had a lot of different uh, recovery experts and professionals on the show. And everyone has a little bit of a different idea or approach or experience around recovery from addiction and trauma. And I think it's so important for all the different views to be heard because addiction is so complex that it need, some every person has a different way that they're going to find their means to recover, to get sober, to move into healing and health. Right. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, there are a lot of different definitions of what addiction is. The, um, you know, American Society for Addiction Medicine has like a huge paragraph about, you know, what addiction is or isn't, I think in general terms, right? Because we're just, you know, people out here trying to do the best we can. Yeah. It's something that we do repetitively that we don't have control over. And it causes us negative consequences. So, for example, like obsessive compulsive disorder, right, where people like wash their hands over and over and over again. In a certain way, that really is a a process addiction, a behavioral addiction, right? It isn't very much different than shopping or gambling. So, what you know, and if you're washing your hands to the point, I'm using this because there's not a lot of judgment attached to hand washing, mm-hmm. right? But if you wash your hands so much that your skin cracks, that's a negative consequence. So if I drink so much that, you know, my relationships are like, hey, this is a problem. My work is like, hey, this is a problem. My work performance is down. You know, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm spending too much money on my substance use, right? Then then we're now in the, the part of it. We're, we're now in the realm of addiction. Yes. You know, and that part about control, people who do not have a problem with addiction just don't understand why we don't stop. Yes. And when I say we, 
I have uh, been sober, completely abstinent from drugs and alcohol for 24 years. My sobriety birthday was uh, June 29th. Happy birthday. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. So, so I get it. So I drink because I need to. And one of the indications of addiction is if I'll use alcohol as an example, if alcohol wasn't the problem, right? Or if, excuse me, if alcohol was the problem, Mm-hmm. When I separate you from the alcohol, right? When we detox you and you're no longer physically dependent on it, you should be better. But you're, if you're an addict, if you're an alcoholic, invariably you are worse because there's a whole psychological process that's going on there, mm-hmm. right? And so that's really what the addiction is because it's a thinking problem. It's a processing problem. Mm-hmm. When I'm drinking, even though I haven't had a drink in a long time, all I'm thinking about is drinking, drinking. When, when can I get it? How much do I need? How much money do I need? Can I get off work early? Who am I going to piss off? What am I supposed to be doing instead of... I'm always thinking about it. That creates some neurological problems that we can talk about if you like, but that wires it in so that all I'm going to do is think about drinking. And that's where the compulsivity of it comes from. Absolutely. And I agree a hundred percent because I, so I specialize, I'm a a therapist, mental health therapist, and I specialize also, I specialize in addiction, but also eating disorders. And I always say that an eating disorder is an addiction. hundred percent. And just as you described, because it is this, you know, this obsessive idea that by doing one thing, you're going to alleviate something that you're experiencing, or you're going to gain control over something that you're discomfort about. Right. So as soon as someone says eating disorder, my mind goes to the word control. I'm trying to control something. Mm. Addiction usually for substance abuse is very similar. Uh, Sex addiction, very similar. I want to control how I feel. I want to control things out in the world that I don't have control over. And so I can control. And food is, you know, one of those things if we restrict in particular, if we binge and purge, if we just binge, Mm -hmm. that we really do have control over. But what changes is, again, this neurological function changes. And so then we actually lose control. Absolutely. Over what we were using to to control our our life or our emotions. So for me, when Mm -hmm. I drank, I wanted to feel numb. I wanted to feel nothing because I come from significant childhood trauma. And so I would actually feel the index finger on my left hand with the fingers of my right hand. And when it felt like wood, right, when I had no emotional response, no physical response, that's what I was going for in my drinking. Well, the problem is, is I drink, I continue to drink beyond that because I'm a good alcoholic. I drink till the alcohol is gone or I pass out. But that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to control my feelings because I had all these trauma responses I didn't know what to do with. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think what I often share with when I'm working with clients who are struggling with addiction is that identifying that for me, it really comes down to we get we engage with an addiction because we're either trying to soothe something or trying to avoid something. Yep. So, you know, some people will, will drink to kind of feel, you know, better and feel like you said, control their emotions. But mm-hmm. for me, I would drink for oblivion. Mm-hmm. I remember my dad told me that he was, 
you know, cause I used to drink socially, I thought, and I would just be, you know, one of the ones getting the most loud and, and drunk. And I thought it was just for fun, but it became problematic. And he said, you know, it just seems like when you drink, you're, you're just drinking to, to escape and for oblivion. And that's what it was for me. A hundred percent. And that's what, that's what the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous describes. The other thing I was going to say is that so it's either to to soothe something or to escape something. And, and, and to your point, that's the creepiest thing to me about an addiction is I always equate it. So I'm a, a you know spiritualist, esoteric person, which I've become more and more of as I got sober, because for me, that spiritual awakening truly does happen when you take away all that cloudiness that addiction causes. You really just kind of get marred over by this, this dark cloud, you know? But as mm-hmm. you figure that out, when you get into recovery and sober... I started to open up more to different ideas. So I became more inclined to spirituality and esoteric mm-hmm. stuff. So I became a tarot reader. That's one of my things as I read okay. tarot. And addiction reminds me so much of the devil card in tarot because okay. that card shows two individuals who basically surrendered to the devil and he has them in chains, but the chains are open. They're not actually trapped. They just are willingly being held captive by this devil because he's offering them something. And it reminds me of addiction because for me, every time in the beginning, it was so good. I I struggled with, I struggled with restriction. I struggled with pills and alcohol and each one, when I started them, I thought, oh my gosh, I found the ultimate solution. I found the ultimate way to feel better, to be able to eat everything I ever wanted and not change how I look. And it just seemed like, oh, I cracked the case. But really what it was is negotiating with conditional terms, which to me means, because let's say you get into alcoholism, you're saying, okay, when I take this drink, I feel this euphoria inside, I feel well-being. But the thing is, it's, you know, it's borrowed time because there's repercussion. Well, you pay a price for anything, right? right? So let's say, you know, I, I want to uh, lose weight. And uh, I know that one of my barriers to losing weight is I eat too much sugar. So I have to, in order to make, to get that goal, I have to, I have to give up something in the short term, right? I don't get to eat the cupcake today because I want to lose weight tomorrow, right? I want to see some sort of change. So whether you, you know, you're paying the price now for something that's positive, right? Or I'm, in a certain way, the addiction also has its positive, I mean, it has its positive side. You know, I come from such horrific trauma that people like me end up suicides and overdoses. We don't live, I'll be 50 this year. We don't live this long, period. Mm. And so when I started drinking, the symptoms of trauma were so overwhelming that it saved me from killing myself. Yeah. So there is, you know, and people, you know, I think one of the mistakes that we make is when we tell young people, don't do drugs, it's bad. Well, then when they do drugs and it's awesome, they don't trust us anymore because we're liars. Yeah, and they don't want to tell you. That's when the lying starts is when they're like, well, they told me this was bad, but I'm falling in love with it. So I'm going to go, whether it's, and that also brings it to, you know, relationships can be addictive, unhealthy sure. relationships, sure. toxic relationships, which is the same thing where it's like, oh, well, I'm getting the message that this is bad and wrong, but I, it feels really good and I like it. So I'm going to not 
just close this and I'm going to keep engaging with this. Well, and there's also the, the whole, you know, issue of denial. Right. Right. Like, no, this isn't bad. This is fine. People don't know. What yeah. Oh, about. you know, or he made it up, you know, or whatever, you know, my, yeah. my father was, you know, had, had his issues. And I remember he beat my mother once and she was gone. I mean, she, she just left. She was like, no, that's no. And, but there are a lot of people who were, you know, maybe he just hits you like just once, or it isn't that bad, or he doesn't really hurt you or he, it's no, no. And, and so there is that denial, especially if people get into the relationship young. Yeah. Because you don't have the experience and the discernment. I mean, we have to keep in mind that our brains are not fully developed until we're 25 years old. Yeah. And so there's a lot of malleability and we learn to accept as appropriate behaviors that are not appropriate. Yes. Yeah. And I think also as you're younger, you can accept things that are not very, I I would say we can use the word normal, like when you're abusing drugs or alcohol and you can, when you're younger, if you haven't had much experience, you can think, okay, well, this is, this is fine. Either, like you said, we can deny it or we can think like I, for some reason, when I was in high school and I was deep in an eating disorder, I was like, this is like normal. This, I have to regulate my weight and I don't know how else to do it except to engage in these behaviors. And so I did it. Well, and also what is normal in your house is normal in your house. Yeah. I didn't realize that people had vastly different experiences because I grew up in the country. So I wasn't popping into, you know, riding my bike down and popping into somebody else's house. You know, if you had a visit to someone else's house, it was a planned thing and it was very infrequent. So when I went to college and I heard how other people lived, at the end of my first semester, I was practically catatonic my uh, friends took me to the, the school therapist because I was like, uh, how can I go back to that? Because I was surrounded with all these people who loved me and it was fun and it was safe and we yeah. took care of each other. And I was like, what is this? Because what was happening in my house was normal for us. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it sounds like, you know, that you might have grown up with a, with a pretty chaotic household. And I'd love if you, you know, in a little bit can share more of your story. But I think also for those of us who did grow up in sort of an unstable, dysfunctional, chaotic home, that feels normal to us. So we're naturally going to kind of gravitate towards situations and circumstances that feel a bit chaotic. You know, I know that I, I really thrived off the the chaos of addiction, you know, when it was like, I get to check out when I get hammered on a Friday night, I don't give a fuck about anything. And I loved it until I didn't. Well, I want to normalize that and and look at that word feels because when we say it feels normal, it's like, it seems normal to us, but isn't. Mm. And I want to say, no, actually in that system, that is the set point. That chaos is the set point. It is the homeostasis. Our feelings are not off. It is normal in that system. Yeah. And so when we try to break out of that system, everything feels helter-skelter, it feels askew. You know, it's interesting. So when people go into treatment for addiction, and let's use substance abuse, because that's mostly what people go to rehab for, although certainly you can go for, uh, for eating disorders and other things as well, but let's just use substance abuse. If you go to 
treatment and you come back and your family does not do its own work, in other words, your system doesn't change, odds are you're going to relapse because you have to fit back into your system. Yeah. The second thing that can happen is your family does its work. The whole system changes and then you've got a real shot at recovery. Yeah. The third thing that can happen is that the family system doesn't change and you're like, I'm just not going to be part of that anymore. And the the person in recovery leaves that system. And those are the three things that you see all the time. Yeah. And I think that what you will see often, not always, sometimes you find very cooperative families who are saying, yes, let's address this. Let's look at it. But then you also have a lot of families that they don't want to look at the fact that they are a part of this family system. They want to be able to, you know, like as we call it, the identified patient, they want to say, you are the problem because you are a drunk and you create chaos and you get in trouble and all these things. So we're fine. It's you. And I've seen a lot of families like that. And that's just, as you said, you can go two ways. The person can either, you know, get back into the system and fall right into it because the family, you know, as they say, they want their homeostasis. So they can almost get right back into that. But it is either they have to remove themselves in that situation to your point, or they work together. And so that's well, what's the, challenging. The other part is, and I work a lot with these kind of families, is they're so, I, I can't, I, I, I do not love working with parents because they so love, and it's usually an adult child, their child, that they can't stop enabling so, for example, I was called by a man. His son was about 25, 26 years old, and he had guns. He was living in the father's house, but he owned guns. And he shot up the place while he was drunk. And I said to the father, I said, You have to take the guns. And he said, I cannot because he owns them. What right do I have? And I said, well, he said, because my son will call the police and the police will say, you have to give the guns back. I was like, I live in the same place you live. I don't know any police officer up here who's going to say, give the the high uh, out of their mind person his dr- his guns back. Right. And so I said, lock him in a, in a safe that he doesn't have access to. Bada bing, bada boom, done. I also said, take away the car because the car was actually owned by the father. I can't take away his car. I said, well, then he is going to die either by gun or by vehicle. And within six months, he had slammed into a tree. Thank God he didn't kill anybody else. Right. But I'm like, you can't because they kept finding he came from rehab in his truck and and he's he's high The gas station calls him. He's high in his car with the car running and can't figure out how to get it out of park. So parents don't know what to do because they feel right. If I take away their phone, right? They call them, call them, call them. Where are you? Can I help you? Can I help you? I'm like, you got to take away the phone because that's the phone they call their dealer on. Make it hard for them to be an addict. They might die anyway, but you've got an Hardly a parent I've ever worked with can actually do that. It's just too heartbreaking for them. And they literally love them to death. 
Yeah. Yeah. It happens so often. Because All the time. Just as you talked about what's there, it really is, you know, this sort of system that's been created. It's not mm-hmm. just the individual, it's this yep. family dynamic and system. It's a, it's a, you know, dysfunctional, sick kind of system that's been created where people, because it, codependency, the term was created to describe addiction. People mm-hmm. un- became aware of it. codependency when they studied addiction and said, there's something going on in these families where not only is the person who's an alcoholic addicted, but the other person's addicted to their struggle and helping them and being the savior and all of that. So just as you said, when that person is told to let it go, that's so much a part of them that they can't do it. And also just, you said they love them. So they think if I tell my son to move out because I'm only enabling him by allowing him to be here and he can make the choice to continue drinking and all this and not to worry about consequences. I can't do that because I can't tell my son to leave. Right. And, and the other part of this dynamic, that's all true. The other part of this dynamic is that we have to understand if we're working with addicts, with people with addiction, we have to understand that addiction makes us do certain behaviors. So I'll use myself. If I'm drinking and you invite me to your wedding, but you say you can't show up if you're not, if you're drunk, honey, I'm drunk every day. Like that's not a fair ask. So if you invite me to your wedding, then it's incumbent upon you to understand that I don't want to show up drunk to your wedding. I don't want to be a jerk. I love you. I care about you, but I have to drink first. So I'm going to show up. I'm going to be drunk or not drunk. I'm going to make a scene or not. Who knows? So my, uh, I have a, a cousin and she wanted her daughter who was a heroin addict. She's now deceased, but she had a daughter who was a heroin addict and she wanted her at her wedding. And she, the daughter, in the middle of the ceremony, went on the nod, and one of her breasts fell out of her dress. The, uh, her uncle, who was sitting next to her, just leaned over, sat her back up, pushed the, you know, pushed the boob back in the dress, and everybody continued on. The daughter didn't want to be the center of a text. She wasn't trying to. She actually did like the lowest dose that she felt like she could in order to show up. And that's just what happens when people are addicted. So we don't do it. We don't. And that's the thing is our behaviors hurt people. You know, if you have cancer, you don't behave in ways that hurt the people around you. Unfortunately, with addiction, with eating disorders, with trauma, we behave in ways that hurt the people that we love. Yeah. And that is unfortunate. But if the people that we love can understand that, well, then we have a shot at really changing the system. Right. Yeah. And that, and it's that open-mindedness and understanding. And that's why I think it is important for people to have a better understanding of addiction. Because also what you said earlier was that people who don't understand addiction just cannot comprehend yeah. why somebody... Because essentially all addiction becomes a slow suicide at some point. You know, most succinctly with drugs and alcohol and um, eating disorders, but anything can lead you to the brink, right? Even a gambling addiction can lead you so low into depression. A sex addiction can lead you so low in how you feel about yourself that you can get close to suicide. So I, I would say, I would say it's, it's, I mean, they, they, the term that we used to use is suicide on the installment plan. I'd say with drugs like fentanyl, 
you know, and with, with diseases like, like HIV, which now can be managed, but a few years ago, right. That would, that was a death sentence. So I, I really think it is suicide. And if you remember back to the mid nineties, I want to say it was 1995, you know, that Nicolas Cage film leaving Las Vegas. I just watched that fantastic movie. It's incredible. But his character, Cage's character makes a statement to the prostitute. And he says, don't ask me to stop drinking because he went to Las Vegas to die by alcoholism. And I mean, this is a you know plot twist. That's what happens. Yeah. Right. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. Spoiler alert. You know, well, if you haven't seen it since 1995, I'm not so worried. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the 27-year-old film. <laughs> Most people know, most people know, most people know what happens, but I mean, but that's, but, and that's the thing. And when I got sober, I always drank because I was terrified of my father. Mm. So I thought, and, you know, people ask, well, would you become an, an alcoholic if you hadn't had, you know, early trauma? And I say, yeah, probably because it just works for me, right? Alcohol works for me to, to help me deal with my emotions. And so I probably wouldn't have gone at it quite so hard, quite so early, you know, but it worked for me. And so my father died rather suddenly. He had a heart attack when I was 22. And in the three or four days after he died, I realized that I was an alcoholic because I was drinking even more. And I was like, why? He's gone. So it wasn't because I was afraid of him. It's because I drank. And this is the thing that I, you know, say to, to other people who are like, you know, well, do I have a problem with addiction? I was like, listen, I drank because the sun came up. I drank because the sun went down. I drank because it was windy or not windy or it rained or it didn't. I drank because it was Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday. Mm -hmm. You know, I drank because I was happy. I drank because I was sad. I drank because I had any feeling at all. I did not know how to cope with my feelings. And I did not know how to cope with the symptoms of trauma. And what I found for myself, it took me two and a half years to get sober. And what I found for myself was that I really had to have concurrent treatment for trauma in addition to addiction. I had to have that support. And back in the mid-90s, there was not great trauma treatment. Yeah. Now there is. Now there is. And so there really is hope. Yes. And there's also, there's better help now because all of the research that's been done. Where before yeah. people would say, um, okay, so you had early tra- childhood trauma, maybe just go talk to someone or me, you know, it's probably with time will get better. There wasn't this intricate understanding. So it's because of so much research that now people are very attuned and more understanding that, you know, the depths of trauma and just how much it affects our mind, body and emotions. Every level it hits on. That's what is so important because when I was, you know, seeking treatment in the, in the early to mid nineties, people sent me to talk therapy well, I could tell you what happened. I, no, I do. I, a caveat. I do have trauma-related amnesia for a three-year period of my life where the trauma was just so bad. I remember when it started and I remember when it ended. And then everything, in, I mean, almost everything from that three-year period is gone. I have some very vague, like one day in school, we were working on a special project where we were making a 
a, a, a replica of Mission San Juan Batista out of sugar cubes. And I remember very vaguely really liking gluing the sugar cubes together. And that's kind of all I remember from that whole year, right? I mean, just little pings of very foggy stuff. But I can tell a therapist, here's the details. I'm so dissociative, though, that I don't feel it. And once, and I'll just speak from my own experience, but the research bears this out. Once I got into a somatic therapy, once I got into my body, right? And we want, you know, uh, Vanderkolk's body keeps the score is probably, you know, the seminal work on that. Although I also love um, Perry and Oprah Winfrey's, Dr. Perry and Oprah Winfrey's book, uh, What Happened to You. Mm. But once I got into being able to be present in my body, my trauma symptoms essentially went away. I dropped 75 pounds doing nothing. I've kept it off for over four years doing nothing, but feeling my feelings. And what happened for me was I got the experience of it's safe to be in my body and it is safe to be present in this time and space with you people. Yeah. Changed my life. Mm-hmm. And what kills me is that somatic therapies very often are not covered by insurance. Well, hopefully that will change as it becomes more commonplace and the value of it is is, is seen and the necessity of it. If someone really wants, because there's so many layers to trauma. Sure. And my belief as a talk therapist is that Talk therapy is the very first conception point of just because there's there is power to the spoken word to speak. This happened to me, and this is what I did. I think that's I did um, AA for a long time, and mm-hmm. the value I found in that was to say, say my story, say it out loud to people, and be like, "Whew, okay, that there it is." I did well, it's that. interesting that you say that because while I love somatics for people who have very you know chronic, long term, complex, whatever word you want to associate with it, trauma. Yeah. The first two years I was with my talk therapist, I couldn't speak. So I would sometimes write her little notes and hand them across and then be dissociated by the time she read it, right? Or I would try to say something and uh, 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 it couldn't come out. I could not say the word incest for two years. Mm. Uh, uh, uh. No, no. So there is, so to, to speak a truth or to share an experience is foundational, Yeah, you know? And I think for me, again, the, these things weren't available back then, but it would have been very helpful to me to have had some sort of physical safe space, you know, somatically in addition to the talk therapy. Mm-hmm. I think that would have been helpful. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's definitely a, you know, a mix of different, you got to, that's why I think it's so important for people to to have their own unique path to recovery, their own unique treatment, because different people need different, you know, mixes of things. And so in 2012, and then we had a second edition in 2014, I wrote a book called Ending Addiction for Good. And it is a, uh, an homage to, um, changing for good, which was about cigarettes. It was a study about cigarettes and, and, and ending smoking. But what the focus of that book is, if you really want to 
let go of or overcome, however you want to perceive it, an addiction. And I mean, I, and I throw hoarding and and OCD and all of that into the same into the same pot. If you really want to get rid of some maladaptive behavior and change it out, you absolutely need an individualized treatment program. And one of the things that I've been doing for, I don't know, 10 or 12 years now is I go all around the world. I research different types of complementary therapies, things, therapeutics that we can pair with talk therapy, somatic and somatic interventions, right? So, because I think both of those are important. So, how do we, what else works? Because therapy alone, 12 steps alone, somatics alone, they all have all these things on their own, have an abysmal success rate. But when we combine Mm -hmm. these different therapeutics, like what you were talking about, each of them is greater than the sum of their parts. And there is a synergistic effect. So I go around the world and I work with other researchers who are doing research, whether it's on yoga or breath or music or theater or whatever. And I try them all out. Now, not all of them I'm comfortable with, right? So they don't all work for me, but I also get to, you know, be in, in you know, group with other people. And I really look for things that have little to no negative side effect. Mm -hmm. So for the last four years, I worked with an organization called Rock to Recovery. And it's a music program where people in addiction treatment facilities write and record songs together. So what's the downside? We can talk about the benefits of music in a second, but what's the downside? You don't finish writing the song. The song isn't, quote unquote, very good. You know, um, somebody, quote unquote, doesn't sing that well. You know, you don't participate, so you don't get any of the benefits. I mean, what's the downside of writing and recording a song? Essentially nothing. Right. It's not like, you know, <laughs> I always laugh on television when they have the, the medications, you know, and the list of side effects is so, attri- you know, it's like it's like, yeah. yeah, sometimes my left eye itches, you know, but but if you take this drug, you know, all your hair is going to fall out. You're going to become blind and you're going to have, you know, uh, diarrhea for, you know, every 10 minutes for the rest of your shortened yeah. life. Right. To get rid of the left eye itching. Right. Mm. So there's no no side effects essentially to writing and recording a song. But singing and playing music, and by the way, your brain has no idea if you're quote unquote good or not. It does not care. It only cares that you do it. It has a list of positive Mm -hmm. outcomes. People stay engaged longer in treatment. They are more likely to comply with treatment uh, suggestions. Immediately following the session, they feel better because your brain dumps when you sing, your brain dumps serotonin, oxytocin, and dopamine in really high levels. Well, if you're in an addiction treatment program and your brain isn't used to producing that on its own because it's getting it from cocaine or whatever you're using, right? Mm-hmm. You're, 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 those feel-good chemicals are depressed. Then you sing a song, row, row, row your boat, 
boom, your brain dumps all these feel-good chemicals. And we have people who come into a songwriting session, literally suicidal, and they leave dancing and singing. Now, you know, as just a regular person, whether you've been to treatment or not and had this kind of experience, you've had this experience. So if you've had a really bad day, and you're stuck in traffic and a song you like comes on the radio and you do your own carpool karaoke and you sing like no one's listening because they're not, you feel better. That's because there's a neurological benefit to singing. Yeah. I do this when I train psychotherapists all over the world. We literally sing row, row, row your boat. And we do it in a round. I, I, a lifelong Girl Scout, you know. <laughs> and uh, so we do it in a round. And I lead all three, you know, three parts. And I have yet to go someplace in the world where they speak English and don't know row, row, row your boat. Right? And we all end up laughing. Yeah. Imagine if you've just come out of whatever because you don't go to addiction treatment on your best day, right? (laughs) Pretty much the opposite. Usually one of your worst days. Right. And so imagine that that's where you're coming from. And now you leave laughing and singing. Yeah. Yeah. So there's so much power. Music is interesting because singing is about the only thing that lights up the entire brain. Wow. So if you're in a negative feedback loop, right, which I would call drinking, right? Because I'm thinking about where am I going to get it? When am I going to get it? How am I going to get it? How am I going to pay for it? Then I drink. And as soon as I come out of that stupor, oh my God, I don't feel good. Where's the bottle? How can I, you know, right? We want to break that, Mm -hmm. right? Because neurologically what fires together, wires together. We want to break that. And singing does that new neural pathways start being built and they start wiring together. So I personally don't drink. I'm abstinent from from alcohol because from my current understanding of neurology, that feedback loop to drink is still there. And my brain still thinks I drink two liters or more of hard liquor a day. So if I started drinking very quickly, that's what I would go back to. That's my understanding of neurology. But the healthy feedback loop of I get up and I do this and I do that and I don't drink is now more ingrained. It is, more, it is dominant. Yeah. So when I had my, my uh, abstinence anniversary, you know, a week or so ago, 10 days ago, whatever it was, it was a Wednesday And I didn't remember that it was my sobriety birthday until someone called me because drinking is not part of my life anymore. Mm -hmm. But the neurological changes are there. So what we do with complementary therapies is we bank on how the brain works. Yeah. So if we know that singing is good for you, I, I mean, Rock to Recovery is a great program. Use any, use any music program if you can't get a hold of that. Sing along to the radio. Learn how to play guitar if that, if that is a power, or piano or trumpet or whatever is a passion. All of that has a positive influence. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that we see in addiction treatment settings is yoga. 
Mm. Well, what about yoga works? Well, the research actually indicates, because one of the problems with yoga is it's usually a very young, very bendy female who's leading the group. And then you've got a bunch of dope sick addicts and alcoholics who lie on the floor in some level of misery and cannot do whatever Miss Bendy is doing, right? And the men in particular, although women do it too, but the men in particular fart like there's no tomorrow. Ha ha ha, isn't that funny, right? As the women flee the room, right? So that's not very effective as a treatment program. So, so I'm looking at what is it that's effective about yoga? It's the breath, it's the breath and the breathing exercises and 3HO, which was Yogi Bhajan's um, yoga, uh, excuse me, addiction treatment protocol is all about breath and breathing. Well, that's something that all the drug addicts and alcoholics can do. They can sit there and they can learn whatever that breathing technique is. Yeah. And it's far more effective. So we, what we want to do is, is to, to capitalize on what's effective. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, both of those methods or means that you just described, also what it reminds me of is, you know, I mean, music is so powerful in so many ways, right? It's uplifting, it's inspiring, but it also, it really gets us out of our head and more into our bodies and into the experience. You know, when we're focused on something, when we're, you know, when you're playing an instrument or you're just like receiving and experiencing the sound of music, we're not so much in our heads. We're really just kind of getting into our feelings, which just as you talked about, that's all about, that's what addiction is all about is saying, I don't want to be, my feelings are scary. I'm terrified of my feelings. They might kill me. And I think that's a big thing, Mm -hmm. especially the trauma survivors feel is, if I let myself feel that, it will kill me. Just as you described, you couldn't even speak to it because it's so terrifying. So when you have music, it's so soothing and it makes you realize, oh wait, maybe I am safe in my body. Because it's kind of like sound healing. Music is sound. So it's like, why I feel good and I'm not taking anything and I'm actually, you know, with, I'm not dissociating. So without even having to, again, we're not using our brain. We're just experiencing that shift. And I think that's why you're saying it kind of creates this change of, subtly realizing I am safe in my body and in my environment. Right. And so there's a lot of research on music that's very interesting. And one of the things is it doesn't have to be always like make me feel better. So, you know, we, uh, Rocks Recovery will work with uh, youth in youth treatment centers. And, um, you know, sometimes they just want to goof off and they're like, the pizza today sucked. Okay. Write a song about it. Right. Well, we can write a song about it. And we we don't always have to be super serious. You know, there's a lot of research. I don't know if you remember back in the 80s, there was um, a lot of criticism of metal, that metal made people, metal music made people violent. But actually, the research shows that people who listen to metal, hard rock, angry, quote unquote, music, they actually have less violent tendencies, fewer violent tendencies, because they get those feelings out. They express them. One of the things in this, in the Rock to Recovery songwriting process is the, the facilitator, who's a musician, will say, you know, but a musician in recovery will say, hey, this is a safe place for you to try something, for you to take a risk, because your life is going to be all about risks 
right? Do I want to do this? Do I not? Do I take the new job? Do I not? You know, and feeling your feelings. And it's a place where people can be supported. And once you have the positive experience of, you know, I love it when someone who isn't a virtuo, a voice virtuoso sings. Because invariably in the groups, everybody cheers. Hmm. That you had the guts to get up there and do what you were not comfortable doing. That you didn't have something to just pull out your back pocket and be amazing at. Like that is where like the real catharsis can come because then this is, you know, again, so, so you don't sound that great. Okay. But because you have the willingness to do that, then maybe you have the willingness to do other things in your life that you might be better at or that you might need to do. You know, one thing people who, who smoke a lot of drugs, methamphetamine, for example, people with eating disorders that, you know, include a lot of vomiting as their purge, don't always have the greatest teeth. Mm-hmm. And to go face the pain and the quote unquote shame and, you know, of getting your teeth fixed in recovery, right? But if you do little things that are scary, you know, then maybe you can do bigger things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a great, you know, segue and, and opening to those other things, which also are ultimately about starting to care for yourself because addiction sure. is a lot about neglect. You sure. know, we become really reckless and we think, you know, I mean, I know I did a million things there. I mean, you know, drinking, you know, two bottles of liquor a day isn't exactly good for the system or any part. Oh, no. <laughs> so, you know, or binging and purging is terrible for your body. So you, for years, you know, you get very disconnected from your body and very disconnected from, from, you know, how we're treating our bodies. We kind of, I, like, I always just saw it as like collateral, like whatever, my body will figure it out. Like I don't, I didn't even think about it. I just didn't think about what it was doing to my body. And so I think to your point is that as people get in recovery and they start doing this kind of work, they, again, once they connect more with themselves, but also think, what can I do to, to treat myself better, to start to see that I am worth investing in? That's it. It's the value. Going to see a doctor, going to, starting to exercise, engage in yoga, starting a hobby like mu- music, you know, cause when you're in addiction, I mean, sure. There's a, there's been a million people who are deep in addiction and still very successful in music and all this stuff. But, you know, once maybe someone who, you know, didn't really engage in a lot, it does open you up to say, well, what do I want to do? But let me, let me put a caveat in there, uh, you know, a comma. Yeah. There are people who are successful in their addiction and they die. A lot of them. Amy Winehouse died. Yeah. Prince died. Right. Right. But we can, and we can make a big long die. list. So, so, but w- there's this, there's this, um, myth that addicts tell themselves that I need my addiction to be creative, to be successful, to be. And so, and that if you look at it in the right frame, right. If in a specific frame and say, oh yeah, they were very successful. For me, I was a writer before I got sober and what my truth is, and I told myself, ooh, I'm a much better writer when I drink, like Ernest Hemingway. Everybody's a better writer when they drink, Everybody right? Says that. Yeah. Everybody says that. 
the reality is, no, that's not true. When I drank, I could not write because I would try to stay sober enough to write to like actually get things on the page. Mm-hmm. And I would stare at the bottle that was next to me until a certain number of hours went by and then it was drinking time. You know, so I think, you know, I I try to bust this myth of the successful person. Yeah, we can have success. You know, uh, uh, Wes Gear, the founder of Rock to Recovery, whose um, story is the first story in, in the book that I wrote about the organization. You know, he talks about how he, you know, did a lot of meth and wrote two songs that went on one of his albums in the band Head P.E. on his way to the studio. But that's the... That's the short term. That's that part that where we're chasing that high of when it worked. Yeah. I was 22 years old and my liver and kidneys were giving out. Yeah. You know, and so that's the, that's the wider lens and the wider lens is, you know, we don't make it. Yeah, we of course. Well, I think I was, we're kind of trying to illustrate sort of what we talked about earlier is that not, I think a lot of people use that as a scare tactic. Like if you get into addiction, you won't make anything of yourself. And I'm just kind of shedding uh, light on the reality that there are many successful people. Some did die, but some didn't who are deep in addiction. So I just point that out because, you know, I not to say that it's, you know, we, we will always be our healthiest and highest self when we're of clear mind when I we're so that's just what I think anybody who's been addicted they'll but there you know there is just what you said there's this idea that some people believe that they have that the drugs are what make them successful and so what I'm kind of saying is that it's a totally different I guess like venue if you want like people who are in their addiction what they produce is very different than when they become sober and healthy like somebody in rock to recovery is going to be in a creative process that's actually present, which is very different when you're on drugs and it's almost like you're just, you know, sort of riding this wave of whatever comes, but then you think, well, how, cause there's many people, many artists who got sober and they're like, shit, am I going to stay relevant? Am I going to be able to produce anything good? Most big rockers or big people were in that place when they got sober. Sure. And what we see is that they do. And if you listen to their stories, they say, I'm actually a better artist because that's who I work with. I work predominantly with artists and they, Mm. across the board, painters, sculptors, uh, actors, musicians, writers, across the board, they say, I'm a better because I'm clear. And I can, you know, when I write a book, I write both fiction and nonfiction, but when I, even in a nonfiction book, I hear what the story is. To me, that's a connection to a higher power. You know, I think it was uh, Michelangelo who said, you know, I see what's in the sculpture and I, I, and I free yeah. it from the marble. Yeah. Right. Love that. And so I have to hear that story. I cannot hear what the story is mm-hmm. when I'm loaded. Yeah. I also have a very difficult time hearing what the story is when I'm blocked by trauma because I'm so far removed from my body and from the present and from this experience that I'm like, wait, I'm kind of foggy and I can't hear what those stories are now that, you know, I, I, I can produce much more written work. Yeah. 
you know, and, and, and you know, that this last book, uh, Rock to Recovery, it's won three yeah, awards. Yeah, show us. Let us see. Yeah, yeah. Rock to Recovery, Music as a Catalyst for Human Transformation. Beautiful. If you're in LA, either, they're, oh, this won't air by then. I was going to say their show is tomorrow. Um, yeah. But it won, you know, uh, a uh, National Indie Excellence Award. It won a nonfiction book award. It won a communicator award. I mean... I can't do that. I'm very proud of it, as you can see. I can't do that when I'm loaded. Yeah. Not only can I not hear the stories, I don't have the confidence in myself. I sit at the computer and I stare at it and I tell myself what a POS I am instead of writing a story. Because you know what? I'll tell you the truth. Everybody's first draft is pretty rotten. Mm -hmm. Everybody's first draft needs to be edited. Any good writer will tell you I edit edit, edit. So it doesn't matter if what goes on is good. Just get something on the page because I'm a much better editor than I am writer, right? I can make it sing in editing. Mm-hmm. Get it on the page. Can't do it loaded. Cannot do yeah. it loaded. Yeah. And what, what I often share with people in sort of a, a spiritual sense is that when we're deep in our addiction, it's like we're very disconnected from ourselves. It's like we've sort of, and that's how I felt. I felt when I first realized that I need to get sober, I was like, how the fuck am I going to do that? I felt like I was a, a hundred miles from whatever me, whatever that meant. Right. And well, yeah. And one of the things that we do, that's all true. And one of the things that we do, so I'm a writer, so I love stories. We, our brains are storytelling machines. We have a whole bunch of data and we tell ourselves a story and that is our truth. Yeah. So we tell ourselves in our addiction, we're telling ourselves lies because if my, if my story was, I'm worth getting up for in the morning. I'm worth, you know, going to the dentist, you know, like I'm worth doing all these things. Then I wouldn't be drinking all day. That was not my story. I was very important to myself, you know, but, you know, uh, uh, one of the sayings in the 12-step programs is I'm, I'm the, the piece of shit around which the world revolves, you know, and that's where a lot of addicts come from. You know, one of the things that I heard my father say when I was 10 years old, I heard my father say, I don't want to have sex with fat women. Well, that's very important information for me. So I started whacking on weight, now, which was interesting because my, my father almost exclusively had sex with heavy set women. That, those were the women that were you know, interested in him. So I put on weight, I put on weight, I put on weight, I put on, I'm 325 pounds. And I really, in my mind, want to be an immovable mass of flesh because I figured at a certain point, no one could, you know, get to the good, so to speak. And then I don't have to worry about it. And for whatever reason, one day a friend of mine said, because, and I'm already in somatic experiencing at this point, in addition to talk therapy. And a friend of mine says, that's not true. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. That's not true. It doesn't matter. Heavy women get sexually assaulted all the time. Like, that's not true. And as I was just saying to you, my father didn't have a preference for, for heavy women or thinner women. He had preference for women that would sleep with him. Whether he paid for it or didn't pay for it, you know, bought you dinner or just 
left money on the on the dresser. Whoever you, he didn't care. As soon as I realized that, boom, shift in perception. So we are, and, and everybody's lies or stories, whatever you want to call it, is different. But as soon as we can identify those, and that's where, of course, talk therapy is so important. Mm-hmm. As soon as we can identify what those incongruencies are with healthy living, we can let them go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, starting to understand what are the actual, what's the actual source of all of this, of this, you know, desire to essentially, because to me, addiction is self-destruction. So the question is, why am I self-destructing? What am I holding deep within me as a strong, because it comes from a belief, which is Mm -hmm. most often that we're not lovable. We're not valuable. You know, that we don't matter. Those three things can are sort of the root of all of this. And it's often the, the result of trauma where something happens and we think, geez, I, I'm nothing. I'm worthless. I am unlovable. So, and then the question becomes, well, then what the hell do I care what I do with my body or to my body or to myself? Because that, you know, that's a deep feeling to have. And it's hard to just, you know, you can't snap out of it. And I think we've come a long way because I think a long time ago, you know, I, my mom has struggled with um, anorexia for, for 40 years. So mm-hmm. I grew up with that and seeing that. And she would tell me that when she got treatment back in like the seventies, they were like, um, yeah, just like rest for a week and try to eat a little bit. And then they're not looking at what's going on. So I'm so grateful that again, that we have researchers like yourself who actually are looking and we're all acknowledging now that this is much bigger than people thought and but that it is resolvable there is a way that we can find and help people to move out of that place of slowly self-destructing well i think that is the most important message you know for me is that there is hope and there are solutions and i do want to say because we have so many marginalized populations, whether it's, you know, LGBTQ, um, BIPOC, you know, so many people who don't see themselves. I gave a presentation once in Egypt, and it was during the Syrian refugee crisis in in Europe, right, where the Syrians were fleeing en masse to get away from the war. And I said, we desperately need people... Arab speak, you know, Arabic speaking people who understand this worldview, because if you're a Syrian refugee and you show up in Germany or the Netherlands or wherever, and there's someone who doesn't look like you, who doesn't speak your language, who doesn't really have any experience in the kind of trauma that you've been through, right? How do we help? How do we help you? Because traditional talk therapy does not work for that. Right. When you have someone who who just doesn't, uh, you, you have to have someone that you click with that you can form a therapeutic relationship with. And so one of the things about someone like me who brings in these complementary therapies are what are the things that are culturally appropriate? What are the things that people have been doing, you know, for a long time? So like they're in, in the, in various native American communities, there's beautiful musical ceremonies. I'm like, great. Let me give you the research so that you, you like have, you know, this a different understanding of why it works. And then tell me what I can do to support you. And then if you're coming to my treatment facility, you know, then what 
in what can I do to bring that into your individualized treatment, not for the whole facility, because that's cultural appropriation, but for your treatment program so that we can give you tools that make you feel good. I had a therapist once, I went to her one session and I, I said, I don't say Kaddish for my father's yard site. If you're Jewish, that makes a lot of sense. If you're not Jewish, that makes no sense. And I spent the next 40 minutes explaining what a Kaddish is, what a yard site is, why it's so important in our culture. And, and I never went back to her because she didn't understand me enough that I could speak my shorthand. Now, I don't know that, that a person, I, I have a wonderful therapist who's not Jewish, but she looks this stuff up and then she, but she, and she also lives in an area where there are lots of Jewish people. So she under, she has an understanding of the culture, right? Enough to do the work. Yeah. And so that's something that I think is really important too, is to say, not only is there hope, but there's hope for everyone because you don't have to look like me. You don't have to sound like me. You don't have to have my worldview. A brain is a brain, they all work the same. You sing a song, your brain will dump serotonin, oxytocin, and dopamine. You will feel better. Does not matter who you are, where you are, where you come from. And so by understanding th- those kinds of principles, we can, we as researchers and therapists can do better and give more hope to people who are suffering. Because that's what kills me is people suffer when they don't have to. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just as you're saying that hope is such a big thing. And I think that's a shift that's happening more in in recovery and treatment. Um, Hopefully, I mean, there's still some that are, I feel like are kind of far behind in that, but to, to not kind of make it out as this sort of this place where you go when you're broken and you're problematic and you're basically like a, a menace to society or a problem for society. Cause to me, what I always tell a client is I would love for you to recognize that when you drank, you were not a bad person. Just Correct. because you struggle with alcoholism did not mean you were bad because I think that's what keeps people, either they'll relapse or they'll stay in the same depressive and avoidant state if they're like, okay, I stopped the drinking and now I just need to, you know, I was such a bad person so I can't do it again or else I'll be bad again. Then it's like you're always kind of fighting this ghost, right? But when you can embrace and say, you know what? Because we talked about this earlier. Addiction is just a way that at that time seemed like the most accessible and understandable way to deal with what we were feeling or what we didn't want to feel. It felt like an appropriate means of soothing ourselves, which again, is what you said, kept us alive. I tell people all the time with eating disorders, I said, you can't have, you know, can't damn your eating disorder is my thought because it was just a part of you that was trying to keep you alive. That was trying to keep you safe because you were hurt. And so you wanted to feel better and your eating disorder said, Hey, I can help you out. Same with any addiction. At the time, it says, hey, I got you. This is going to help you. This is going to you know, make you better. And it takes us to go to the depths of, okay, maybe that was true then, but it ain't working. I'm dying here. But let's take it out of the extreme so that the people who are not addicts can understand it, okay. right? If I am having a bad day again and I eat a donut, maybe I eat two donuts, I feel better. 
I do. It dulls my, all that sugar, it dulls my feelings. It's what someone who drinks a glass of wine or maybe two in the course of an evening wouldn't be outrageous, right? It's that same process. And so the, the, the problem for the person with addiction is that it just takes over very often because we are so injured yes. that we need more. With all, I, about half of people who are in an addiction treatment facility qualify as having diagnosable trauma. But of, I've been working with addicts and alcoholics for a quarter century now. And of all the people that I've worked with, thousands and thousands and thousands, honestly, I know one person, one, who says, I don't know what happened. I had an idyllic childhood. There is no addiction in my family. I I just became an alcoholic. Like literally, and and it confounds him. He's like, he's like, I really, you know, he's been sober a long time. So, you know, it doesn't bother him anymore. But he's like, I really don't know. One person out of the thousands. Are there other anomalous, you know, individuals? I'm sure there are. But we drink, we drug, we engage in, in you know, uh, sexual, you know, risky sexual activities. We binge, we purge, we restrict, we gamble because we, we need a way to control our emotional state because we don't feel safe. That's usually how it starts. And then it either does or doesn't get out of control. Yeah. Yeah, well, it begins to take a hold of you, right? And that's the interesting flip that happens. It's, it's something that you, they'll say this about an eating disorder. It's something you use for control that ends up controlling you. Absolutely. And to me, that's when, you know, people, I, I also like to work with a lot of people who are kind of on that verge where they're like, I don't know if I have a problem. I just know that I, t- mm-hmm. I tend to abuse alcohol sometimes. Sometimes I don't. I notice that it's starting to interfere with my relationships, with my job, but am I? And, I'll, you know, one of the questions that I'll ask, I'll say, well, do you feel like something that you originally used to enjoy yourself, you feel more calm, is starting to become a need or starting to feel like it's starting to control you where, you know, it's not anymore like, oh, I think I'll have a drink. It's more okay, I'm going to need a drink before I go do this, when I wake up in the morning. Well, that brings us back to that original definition, right? At the start of this conversation is, you know, like I try to take it to real simple levels, you know, are you starting to have negative consequences as a result of that? And I mean, I love your need analogy where I go with it is, and if you don't have it, right? Because there's a part where I can, there are times where I could control my drinking, just not have it for a little while and I'm miserable. So if I don't have it, does that negatively impact my ability to be in relationships, show up for activities, so on and so forth? If the answer to both of those questions is yes, right? That I'm, I'm, I seem to be losing control over it and, um, you know, I feel like I need it um, sometimes. Well, then I look at, you know, okay, then we should look at this. Is it, is it causing me problems? Well, then it's a problematic behavior. And I think what scares people very often is this idea of abstinence. Yeah. I abstain 
because the person who, uh, what we would call 12-stepped me in a 12-step program, who introduced me to a 12-step program, he said, can you control how much you drink and be comfortable with it? So we tried, um, he suggested, I only drink a six-pack of beer at night. Now, keep in mind, I'm drinking two liters of hard liquor every day. So, so to, to downgrade to a six-pack, and I'm 22 years old, to downgrade to a six-pack is quite a big ask. And I was able to do it for, I don't know, two or three days. And then I was like, this is miserable. Okay, note taken. Then I kept drinking the way I drank. And then he said, can you not drink? I was able to not drink for six days. Important information number two. So I'm pretty miserable if I try to control how much I drink. And I'm pretty miserable if I, you know, I can't not drink for any extended period of time. And then people around me are like, you know, you're kind of miserable when you drink. Like, I, we don't like to be around you. I got locked in a bathroom, in, a, in the bathroom stall of a very fancy Beverly Hills restaurant. I had to call out. I was like, I don't know where I am. And, he, you know, my friend was like, you're in a bathroom stall and your entire family, including your elderly grandparents, are sitting out front waiting for you. Because every Saturday we had family dinner. And so he knew I was at some restaurant somewhere. Couldn't figure out how to get out of the stall. I need help. Yeah. And for me, that's abstinence. Because at drinking two liters of liquor a day, I don't know how you just drink a beer for me. But I let people, I, 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 I was just last week, had, a, had dinner with a guy who has clearly had a drinking problem his whole life, broke up a marriage over it. He's, I don't know, 82, 83, something like that. And he drinks a beer mm. with dinner. Who am I to judge? Who cares? It's yeah. It it works for him. He's not breaking up relationships. His family likes to be around him. He's not losing all his money drinking. Okay. But those are things that an individual can very easily figure out for themselves just by, you know, Mm -hmm. trying. Now, I don't know any social heroin users. Like if you're shooting dope, it's not really a social thing. Yeah. But you know what? try to reduce or people ask me all the time. They're like, well, what if I just went to uh, marijuana, stop shooting heroin, went to marijuana. Absolutely. hundred percent, hundred percent. It's a harm reduction technique. Yeah. Go for it because you know what? You're not going to die next week from marijuana. You have every time you shoot heroin, it could have fentanyl in it. You could, you could die to, you know, today. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I I think that, again, a different shape for everybody is in terms of what their recovery looks like. It's not across the board. That's why I'm, I'm big on not having like this narrow definition of what recovery means and how you do it and that there's nothing outside of those parameters. However, one thing I will say, and it, that's just strict from my own experience, is that I would at least offer to someone, not say that it has to be this way, but offer, maybe give it a little time to see what it's like to be totally sober because I know for me, I still kept my rose colored glasses for, I would say like two years where I was like, Oh, I miss happy hours. And like, wouldn't it be nice to have a glass of wine? But at this point where I'm now like almost eight years out, there's no part of me that has 
any desire because, and here's the thing about time, the things that I've been able to achieve and the growth that I've had and the healing has been so exponential since I got sober. I wouldn't do anything to question, to compromise that. And it's not like I'm denying it. It's just the idea of a drink has zero appeal. In the first few years, it did. There was still a little bit of like, yeah, it'd be nice. Maybe, maybe. But now, you know, I, I was actually dating someone who talk about someone who didn't understand addiction. They just didn't get it. It was like, you know, their, their brain reset every few weeks and they'd be like, Hey, why don't we just go for a drink? And it's, I I don't drink. I choose not to drink. And he would ask me why, which is good, you know, to be challenged. And that's what I told him. I said, I just have no desire. I said, maybe I would be fine. But the fact that it's the one thing that I could do that could compromise everything I've gained, I just, I have no interest. You know, it it is, it is in in a certain way. It really is a choice. So I know a rabbi who keeps kosher and he stopped drinking and he didn't really have a lot of problems not drinking. And I asked him about it and he said, I just think of it as, as trafe, as something that's off limits. So it's no different to him than a pork chop. And that really solidified for me. You know, I have a friend who, who has a medical condition and she doesn't eat dairy. You know, we have friends, you know, we all have friends who don't eat gluten, right? Yeah. It's, we have friends who are vegetarians, we have friends who are vegans, right? We, you know, all sorts of things. And it's just, it's just a choice. And, and for me, it has become that because my life is so much better. First of all, I'd be dead. You can't drink two liters of alcohol a day at 22 years old and live to be 50. That does not happen. But my life is just so good not drinking. There is nothing that a taste of alcohol would give me that would make it worth what I would potentially lose. Because I know that that voice, right, that drink, 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 that brain, you know, uh, biology is still there. Yeah. You know, and I'm not, there's a a saying in in 12-step programs, your your disease is doing push-ups in the corner. It's not exactly true. But what's happening is when I last stopped drinking and I had a tolerance, right, I was also 22 years old. Now I'm 50 years old and have no, and have regular 50 year old, you know, medical, you know, starting, starting the slide into, you know, dead, which we hope will be a long slide, but still starting, you know, starting to have problems, right? Mm-hmm. My body just couldn't take two liters of liquor a day. You just can't do it. Yeah. You know, it would give out, but my brain thinks that's what you drink. That's what you drink. My liver would, my my liver would probably just pop out the side. It would be like, no, dude, no. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that those are all, uh, you know, great reminders. Whenever I work with somebody who's new to recovery, I have them write out their why, right? Their why of why they're getting sober. And I say, make that list and keep it and add to it for the rest of your life. Because there's a million, because everything you just listed are different whys. Well, I don't want to have my liver be shot and I don't want to compromise my happy life. All of these things. And I I like that approach because it's not a fear-based approach. When it's too much about fear, like if you drink, you will die and you'll ruin your life. But just like you talked about, like avoiding dairy, it's the same thing. I could take a drink. I could. I think it's I think it's important to allow for that. So I agree. again, you're not demonizing it. You're just saying, you know what? There it is. 
but I just don't, I don't think I want to. And let me look at why. Well, I'll make my spreadsheet and I'll look at it and I can look at it mathematically and logically and emotionally. And I just don't see how it would work out. And I think that's powerful because then it's not dependent on this like ring of fear that keeps you like holding on. Like, okay, I'm not going to drink because I'm terrified. It's more like, no, I just, I just don't think I want to because I don't want to lose these things. I don't want to compromise what I have. Think about like bodybuilders, right? And they eat, you know, uh, grilled or, or, you know, broiled or boiled, you know, chicken and chicken broccoli and and vegetables. Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. and, and it's like, wow, because they want a certain outcome. Yeah. And that's you know? okay for them. Some people wouldn't do that. They would. And that's great for them. But that's where I say it comes down to a choice. I yeah. love what I get to do with my life so much. And you're right. Is you know, people... I go places, I get offered drinks all the time. I go to, you know, functions and there's lots of, you know, liquor or whatever. It just is, has become meaningless to me. And the other thing that I, I, I want to say is that, you know, when you were talking about how you, you have a list of whys, I think it's very important to understand that treatment that is monofocused usually doesn't work. You know, one of the things it says in the in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is that this program, the the 12-step program is designed to treat alcoholism. But if you need biological support, right? If you have diabetes or, you know, uh, uh, an ear infection or what the 12 steps does not help you with that. Yeah. Right? So if you need biological support, if you need psychological support, or if you need spiritual support, and I think people generally need all three, then go get them mm -hmm. and use the things that are useful. And you don't have to do the you, you don't have to do the rest. So for me, right, like I said, you know, earlier, I needed treatment for trauma in addition to concurrently with treatment for addiction. Absolutely. I couldn't do one without the other because when I got sober and didn't have trauma treatment, the trauma symptoms came up and I started drinking. Yeah. Right. And when I just treated the trauma, it was so overwhelming that I needed to drink. And so it was only when I had support for addiction. Okay. You can, you can do this. We're going to support you in the not drinking and support for the trauma. Okay, we're going to support you so that you don't have to drink. Then that's where I really started to get recovery. And then I started adding in these other things. And then, like I said, there's a synergy yes. where each one of these things essentially is a good, nice habit. Like, you know, if you brush your teeth or floss your teeth or go to the dentist. Well, each of them has a limited impact. But if you do them together, brush your teeth and floss your teeth and have a mouth rinse and go to the dentist, well, now you're cooking with gas. Right now, each of those different efforts is greater than the sum of its parts. Yes, absolutely. And they all lead to addressing 
you know, to me, it's, it's, if you think of it, it's all just sort of this different ointments that are addressing this, this pain within us that ultimately is the trauma. It's that pain and shame that comes from it. And the more the different modalities and the different means of treating it, the more that it's not just one ointment. That's like, okay, this isn't going to work for everything, but as you described, it's, and, and that's why, you know, we need patience. It can take time for it to discover each. And also, you know, we're not always ready. You're out of the gates in sobriety. You're not ready to do the whole spectrum. You know, you don't, that's why, you know, as they say one day at a time, but also just do what you can as you go along. Well, and I have a lot of respect because for people who don't choose recovery, it's hard because I want people to get better. Their family wants them to be healthy. But I do understand, you know, and, and, and Gabor Mate from just across the border here in, in Vancouver, Canada, he, you know, that's his work, is there are people who are like, you know what, today facing these traumas is not something I'm willing or interested in doing. Mm-hmm. And you know what, as a researcher or as a therapist in your case, I feel like it is my responsibility to respect that. If you, as, you know, an individual put up a boundary, you know, that's why when someone says to me, well, I'm willing to stop, you know, fentanyl or opioids, but I'm not willing to stop marijuana. Okay. Yeah. It's your life and you get to make choices. And just like, you know, that Nicolas Cage film, like it broke my heart that he dies. Yeah. Because I'm like, you know, I'm like, no, there's there's no good faith in your life. That was not his choice. And I get to, I have the choice to respect your autonomy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, because that is one, you know, one of the ultimate results is that someone could die. Then we do need to be reasonable and say, the only thing that matters is that whatever path you take is going to work. If it's a path that's not going to work for you, don't take it. If you get too overwhelmed or it doesn't, or if you don't, if you can't look at your trauma, then by all means do not. As long as we're moving you towards a place where you are feeling, you know, taking at least some steps towards safety and abstinence and recovery so that you're able to, you know, not be where you were. That's all that matters. Even if it's tiny little baby steps, even if you're, you know, you're just baseline for a year, you're still alive. You're still sober. You know, I always tell my clients that they'll be like, well, you know, I'm not doing very much. And I haven't, I'm like, dude, you've been sober for four months. That's incredible. If you had done nothing out, but laid in bed and being sober. Fantastic. Let's have a party. It's huge. It's huge. It's huge. And you know, people can't do what they're not ready for. So, you know, they may want to do something. And I went to a treatment facility and I got sent there and it was terrible for me. Mm-hmm. And they would send me to these trauma groups. I am not kidding. The minute I walked in the door, I passed out. I mean, I wasn't even asleep. I was passed out. You could not wake me. I did not. I got in that trauma room and I am gone out. The minute the group was over and they opened the door and people start, I woke up. I wasn't ready. Yeah. To do that work. And my body literally took me out. My body's like, you just, no. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. And that's how certain people are going to respond. And I think it's important to respect that, you know? And I, so I think that, again, any treatment center that's more attentive to what is this person ready for? What did they have the capacity for and not trying to push it is the more that people are able to 
uh, you know, experience and move into recovery without this, you know, one size fits all and without a stigma where it's like, well, you have to stop now and you have to do this because, you know, it's bad. The more that we release stigma, the more that we are opening to just helping people heal. And that's all this is about. There was never anything wrong with you. It's not that you are a bad person. We're do, we just want to help you be more of have more peace, feel more. Well, that's the point of Dr. Perry's work. It's basically an in, Oprah interviews him is essentially how the book reads. Mm-hmm. But, you know, instead of saying what's wrong with you, which is what we would have done 10 or 20 years ago, right? That yeah. was what's wrong with you. Why do you do this? Why do you drink so much? Why do you, right. why do you restrict your food? Like what, what is wrong? Yeah. Right. Snap out of we, it. We'd say, what happened to you? Mm-hmm. I love the, um, the ACEs, right? Adverse childhood experiences research, because it's all about what happened to us early in life and how that is predictive of all sorts of biopsychosocial problems later on in life. Yeah. And all, all of that contributes so much. And so again, I think that's why it's so amazing how far we've come and why I'm so grateful for researchers like yourself who are really shedding light, understanding so that more and more people can understand addiction and release the stigma. Right. So thank you so much, Constance. This has been such an amazing conversation. And I'm very you. glad to be here with you. Thank you for your work. And I'm going to put a link for your, your book in the show notes. If you can show us one more time, that's fantastic that you... So th- This is my most recent book, Rock to Recovery, Music as a Catalyst for Human Transformation. All of my books are available on Amazon, so check them out. And how else can people find you? If people are listening, they'd like to connect with you, learn more about your work. How can they yeah, do that? Yeah, so I'm on, uh, I have a website, ConstanceSharf.com. And also I'm on uh, TikTok, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. So you can reach You're out to me in those ways. Oh, I'm all on it. I'm all yeah. on it. And that's so wonderful because you're so valuable and you're so fantastic in what you're offering. You know, the, again, the more that people put this out there and speak to this and offer hope and a wider lens around addiction the more progress we make in helping people. So yeah, I really try to be very available because I want people to be able to access people like me, you know, and other researchers and, and to know that there are opportunities out there. That's what I, that's what I love about social media. I get to go out there and speak and say, here are the resources that are available. Avail yourself of them because a lot of them are free or no or low cost. It takes nothing no cost for you to sing a song and help brighten your mood. And I want people to know what the research is behind that and that it's available to them. Yes, absolutely. So fantastic. So thank you again, Constance, and congratulations on your milestone with your sobriety, your birthday milestone coming up, but also, you know, for both of us and, and anyone listening, who's either moving into recovery or has some recovery, you know, congratulations on that sense of freedom and the beautiful life that you've been able to have now that you went through that, you know, very challenging thing of facing and addressing your trauma. And I just, you know, the more that we put that out there, because so many people sit still in a cave with their trauma and they think I can never come out with this. And the more people that do come out, the more people that will get that courage to seek help. Let me say one thing before we end. And that is it can be hard in the beginning. Mm. What you're seeing in me is 24 years in. The Mm. first, like you were saying, the first one, two, three years was not rosy. It was not easy, but it is so worth it now. 
Absolutely. And just for, so for everyone can know that there is, it is possible and there is help out there, whether it's, you know, you or someone who can be a guide and a researcher and who understands it so much and has their own experience, or it's, you know, a therapist or it's a treatment center, or it's, you know, going to a yoga class and just trying to explore your body, whatever it is, there are so many resources now to begin that journey. If you're just questioning whether you have an addiction, or if you know darn well that you need help, there's many different ways and many different means and it's out there. It is. All right, Constance, well, you take care. Thank you. Thank you. That wraps up our beautiful conversation with our wonderful guests. Thank you so much for listening to the Women Waken podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with others and come back for more. If anything you heard resonates, leave a review or send me an email at Whitney at womenwaken.com and check out the website, womenwaken.com. Have a wonderful rest of your day and don't forget to let your light shine and keep an eye out for your special gifts and magic.